You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. I know what you're thinking. Uh Uh-oh, Bobby's got the mic. (laughs) No, last night, about 6.30, I see on my phone Jeff Blackburn. Oh, this can't be good. This can't be good. So I answered the phone, and Jeff said, well, I've got a fever. Just started. So uh, to be safe and everything, uh, Jeff stayed home today. Uh, He said, I feel just bad enough to feel bad. So it's not bad at all, but uh, y'all pray for Jeff uh, that he would uh, feel better this week, and also for his family that they would uh, stay well as well. Um, But Something that's been uh, on my mind the last week or so, even uh, connected to uh, what I posted on Facebook the other day, if any of you happen to watch that, but uh, it's the idea of God wanting to be with us. And so uh, as we think about that today, let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for all that you do for us, but we thank you so much more for the fact that you love us, that you love us as much as you do, that you love us so much that you want to be with us and want to, uh, want to save us from ourselves and that you want us to be with you forever in the new world. And God, we just praise you so much that you've called us to this. And Lord, we pray also for Pastor Jeff this morning that you would bless him and his family and that you'd keep them safe and well. And God, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So have you ever seen something with your own eyes that not a lot of people get to see? Some sort of experience or some sort of view or something like that. Well, for me, it is this place called Pulpit Rock in Norway. The locals call it something like Prekestolen. I probably massacred that. But um, Now, from the nearest parking lot, it's about a two and a half mile hike up to this rock. And um, when I first went, not first, the only time I went, but when I went, I was with a crew of college kids. Um, We were on a musical tour, and we had no idea what we were getting ourselves into. We had no idea what this was going to be. All they said was, it's beautiful, it's a big rock. And so we said, okay. Um, And so we went. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm a boy from Alabama, just a country boy. And we don't really have mountains in Alabama. We got big hills. And so I had no idea what I was getting into, no idea what I was going to see. There was nothing that really could prepare me for this. But this outcropping of rock, it's about 82 feet by 82 feet. And it's about 2,000 feet high above the fjords below. Now, just for reference, 2,000 feet is 500 feet higher than the Empire State Building. Okay? So we're talking about a pretty significant distance, right? And so really, quite frankly, there's, there's not any words to describe, not any words to help you understand uh, what we saw when we came over the mountain to descend onto that rock. Stunning, amazing, beautiful, phenomenal, all those words and more. I was there. I stood on that rock. I saw that rock and I saw that panorama with my own eyes. I even laid down on that rock and felt the coolness of the rock and even scooted up to the edge so that you could feel the wind off of that. And it was absolutely amazing. 
But what's my point here? You just needed to be there. You know, I can't tell you everything. I can't even remember everything that happened some 20 years ago when I had a chance to see this. Um, I can't describe to you the wind that was coming up off of that rock. I can't describe to you how scary and interesting it was that there's no barriers. There's no walls to keep you safe. You're basically just on the edge of this big rock. I think if this had been in America, we would have ruined it by now, right? Um, I can't describe to you the valleys that we walked through to get to this big rock or that it rained on us that day as we were uh, hiking up there. Basically, you're never going to understand what it was like to be on that trip, on that tour, on that rock. You know, I just met these people about two months before we started this tour. And we just got so close together, and to be on this rock together and take a picture with all 30 of us uh, was a phenomenal thing and was a beautiful thing. But you just had to be there, right? I wish you could have been there with us. See, with is an important word here, and we're going to get to more of that in just a minute. You know, if we could somehow put ourselves back into the past and, and see and hear all the things that Jesus talked about around what he did and around what he taught and around what he said. You know, all that stuff that John talks about in the end of the gospel where he says there's so much that even there, there's no novel, no novels, no uh, books, no paper enough to help us understand all that he did, right? If we could be there and understand all that stuff, we would hear what Jeff preached about last week. We would hear Jesus' message, the core of his message, repent and believe. Repent and believe. He wanted nothing more for us than to turn around from our wickedness, to turn around from our sinful ways, and to believe. But to believe what? To believe the truth about who he is, and to believe the truth about his love for us and all that he did to be with us. You know, all throughout history before Jesus came on the scene, um, they, had, they had gotten things wrong and started to understand things and misconstrue things about God, about who God was, about um, how God related to his people. You know, it's uh, one of those things where they kind of got to a point where they believed in a God that was even angry or judgmental or mad or like a friend of mine used to say, a big combat boot in the sky waiting to squash you when you made a mistake, right? And they began to believe these things about God, but God didn't want that. That wasn't who he was. And he sent Jesus to be a part of what I want to remind you of today. I want to remind you, and maybe even for some of you, tell you for the first time, the truth about God's love for us and the infinite depth that he went to just how much he wants to be with us and for us to be with him. And I want to give us four examples of uh, God proving that he wants to be with us. And the first one is in creation. You know, in Genesis, uh, we, we have these great stories, you know, uh, God creating everything. And um, things like this pulpit rock, right? And we hear God speak, and it was. God would say, let there be light, 
and there was light. Let there be um, a separation from darkness to light, and there was separation. Let there be trees, let there be whatever, and there was that, right? And uh, we love those stories, uh, and when he spoke, it just was. That was the way that he created. And he looked on his creation and he said, it is good. But as amazing as this is, he didn't speak everything into being. There was one particular creation that was different. And we read about this in Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. The key word there is make. Let us make man in our image. It's kind of described a little bit further in a little bit more detail in Genesis 2, 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. God was saying, I want to be intimately involved with this creation. It was almost as if God got down on his hands and knees and pushed the dirt together to make the mound to create uh, man because he wanted to be intimately involved with its creation. But it wasn't just that and forming it this way. There was also how man came to breathe and came to life. You know, he very easily very easily could have just said, let there be man, and there would be man. Or he could have formed us in the ground and then say, let there be breath, and there'd be breath. That's not what he did. He breathed the breath of life directly into that mound, and it became alive. He is intimately involved in creation of man because he wants to be with us. And even better than that, he looked on that creation and he said, it is very good. He wanted to be with us. A second example is the one that we've celebrated the last week, and that's the idea of Emmanuel. In the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah said in 714, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall, shall call his name Emmanuel. Now Matthew tells us a little bit more about that, that Emmanuel means God with us. He became Emmanuel because he wanted to be with us. He wanted to be like us and to experience what we experience, to love what we love, to help us love others the way he loves us. But can you imagine what Jesus gave up to become Emmanuel, to become God in the flesh with us? You know, that perfect intimacy that he had with God and with the Holy Spirit that throne room where the seraphim and cherubim would sing all day long his praises, every day. There's so many things that we can't even imagine. But all given up, as Paul tells us in Philippians, he emptied himself and he humbled himself, taking on the appearance of man. All this to be born in a dirty, nasty stable into a world full of evil, murderous people. To live in difficulty. Some might even say to live in poverty. All given up, all that stuff, to deal with all of that mess because he wanted and chose to be Emmanuel, God, with us. A third example of 
God's uh, proof that he wants to be with us. And that's in the passion of Christ. You know, we use that phrase a lot, the passion of Christ, of, uh, uh, of bringing together all the ideas of all that happened around the week of Jesus's, uh, Jesus coming to Jerusalem and uh, being put on trial and um, taken before Pilate and um, dying on the cross, being buried, being raised to life. All that we call the passion of the Christ. And all of that is proof that God wants to be with us. And we use these three terms pretty often. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. Now those are some big fancy theological terms, right? But um, those are important in thinking about uh, the why behind why God wants to be here with us. And part of that is justification. Justification is uh, the idea, uh, the picture of God being uh, the judge. Uh, and we, because of our sinful life, because of our sinfulness, because of uh, that sinful world that uh, we are in ourselves, um, we, we owe a debt to God. We owe a payment, and that payment is life, that we should die for our sins, right? But with God on that throne, with that gavel in his hand, he brings it down and says, but wait, you're not going to suffer the consequences because Jesus, he paid the consequences. He died your death, and I declare you not guilty. Right? Amen. That's justification. Now, sanctification is the next step. Sanctification is that uh, day in and day out, uh, striving to be more and more like Christ in everything that we do, in everything that we say, in everything that we think, in the way that we live. And sanctification is that uh, process of becoming holy. You know, it's not just one thing, like a gavel coming down and declaring you justified. Sanctified is a daily active moving thing in our lives where we're constantly moving towards Christ. We're growing in the knowledge and in the wisdom of his stature. We're growing to be more and more like him. And that's sanctification. But then there's glorification. And glorification is the end of all things when we are made to be fully like he intended us to be and we go into heaven, into our eternal home. We get to spend the rest of eternity in his presence, enjoying his presence. No more tears, no more pain, no more death, all that wonderful stuff in heaven. And that is glorification at the end of all things. But there's one step in there that we don't talk about very much. One step in there that we often leave out, and I think it's important that we place this step back in, the, in this mix. You see, when God brought that gavel down and declared us not guilty, that wasn't the only thing that happened at that moment. At that moment, he also said, not only did Jesus pay the price for your sins? Not only are you not going to have to pay that price, not only are you not guilty now, but I want you to be my child. I'm going to adopt you as one of my own. I want to bring you into my family to make you as much a part of my family as Jesus is, to give you as much as I am going to give Jesus 
to make you co-heirs with Christ. You see, when we understand that adoption and just how important it is that we're now a part of God's family, that helps us to understand how we're to be sanctified in the sanctification process because we want to be like our Father in heaven. We want to be in a mode of thinking that we can grow in Christ. See, those justification, adoption, sanctification, and glorification. In all of that, we can ask the question, why did God make that process as it was? You know, the whole passion of the Christ. All of that so He could show us how much He loves us. And so that there is a uh, there is an avenue for him to be with us and for us to be with him. Now, the fourth example is a little bit different. And you may not expect it because uh, we don't often talk about this in, in this light. But that is the Great Commission. Um, Matthew twenty-eight nineteen through 20a says this. You can probably all say it with me too. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. That's what we know is the Great Commission uh, from Matthew 28. You know, we've, we've kind of made a mess of this verse though. Uh, we've, we've really gotten it wrong in a lot of ways, especially in the American church. Uh, there's a guy named Will Mancini that wrote a book that Jeff and I are reading, and uh, he, he says this. He says, the Great Commission is not go into all the world and get people to show up, and if you have a healthy bottom line, it will, I will be pleased with that too. You know, we've made it that making disciples is somehow equal to making converts, And even further, we've kind of relegated this command to the leaders, to the pastors, to the elders, to those teachers, that they're the ones to be making disciples and making converts. So there's one thing that we've gotten wrong in the understanding of making disciples. But another thing that we've messed up on is in our English translation of sorts, of this, uh, of this verse. You know, we often shorten it to go and make disciples, right? Go and make. Go and make. Go. Go becomes the active word in the way that we sometimes think of it, right? Go becomes the main word. As if, you know, we somehow stop everything we're doing and then we go somewhere and we do something and we say something and converts will be made, disciples will be made because of our going. But that's not where the emphasis is in the Greek language. The nuance of the Greek verbiage gives us this idea of make being the key word. Not as a single, uh, uh, singular one-time, point-in-time occurrence, but make is a present, active, imperative verb. That's a lot of words, right? Present, 
active, imperative word. Imperative means it's a command, something we must do. Active, obviously, is the opposite of passive. We are to be active as we are making. But before that is present active imperative. It's a present tense verb. Present tense all the time, every day, every part of our life. You're now yesterday, you're now today, you're now tomorrow. We should be doing this. We should be making disciples. That's what the original language means. Byron Spradlin states it this way. It says we can kind of rearrange our words and think of the Great Commission in light of those truths, something like this. As you are going, as you live your life day in and day out, be always making disciples who are baptized and taught to obey my commands. But here's the thing about the Great Commission. We often stop with those two verses. They're actually a verse and a half. But before this and after this is where the power comes. It's where the proof comes that God wants to be with us. The context is everything here. So before it, in verse 18, Jesus says this. Jesus came to them and he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And immediately after those verses, the rest of verse 20, And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth. He's saying, I have all the power. I have all the authority. So go and make disciples. And as you are doing that, I will be with you. You know, all that power, all of that authority that he used in creation to bring man into life, to breathe breath into man, to humble himself and to come and be one of us as Emmanuel, to be that sacrifice of atonement on uh, the day that he gave his life on the cross, to be victory over death, hell, and the grave. All the power and authority to grant us adoption as sons and daughters, to promise us a future glorification in heaven. Jesus, with all of his power, all of his authority, he is with those who repent and believe and he calls us to make disciples by baptizing them and teaching them to obey his commands. You see, Emmanuel was not just a baby in a manger. He is the word that was with God since the beginning. He was in the beginning with God. In him alone is truth and life. A light that shines in the darkest corners of our lives. And that darkness cannot be overcome by or excuse me, and the light cannot be overcome by darkness. That light is Emmanuel, God with us, God in us. So you see, we can't just sit back and bask in this truth that God wants to be with us. The Great Commission doesn't allow for this. See, not only are we supposed to repent and believe these truths, but we're also to make disciples who repent and believe these truths who make disciples that repent and believe. The, the things I really want us to remember 
Number one, that God wants to be with us. And when we say us, we can sometimes think of this in this generality. But God wants to be with you. With you specifically, with you personally. That's his love. That's his desire to be with you. But secondly, we need to remember that we can't stop there and enjoy just God being with us. A part of him being with us is this commission, this command, this imperative that we also make disciples who understand these truths. You see, we are the messengers. We're the ones who are supposed to take this understanding and these truths into the world. Almost every name of God uses attributes that reinforce how lofty and exalted and separate he is. Elolam, everlasting God. Jehovah Mekodeshkem, Lord who sanctifies. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals. Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is my banner. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. All true, comforting, and singular, emphasizing his untouchable, unattainable, unrivaled power. Someone so big and omnipotent that language can never fully capture his essence any more than a graven image could. But you know what? There's something better than words or statues or names. Something the prophet Isaiah foretold. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. It shall call his name Emmanuel. God with us. It's not about the name, Emmanuel. It's about the manifestation of that name. The audacious, this really happened miracle of God taking on human skin, arriving down at our level, surrounded by straw, barn animals, manure, tears, a wooden feeding trough for a crib. Frightened parents way over their heads, total strangers barging in on the whole scene, every detail so deeply human and raw. And he was willing to go through it. Even the worst that would come 33 years later, all for one reason, to be with us. That almost sounds too good to be true. And that's because if there's one thing you could say God is too much of, was a little overboard with, it's goodness and truth. What then shall we say? What of names of prophets, conquerors, secret pregnancies and surprise guests at a birth? For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard that we're not alone anymore. Emmanuel, God with us. 
The messages we've received mean we are not hearers only, but doers. And messengers of word proclaiming the news to the four corners of the earth, inviting all to come and see that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In him was the life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And it never can, and it never will. It's not that people ought to know, people could know, people should know, but people must know. The wait is over. Where are the messengers now? In our sinfulness, in our in our utter stupidity sometimes, you still want to be with us because you love us so much. But God, help us not to just bask in that glorious idea. But help us to recognize, help us to understand, help us to put into action the Great Commission that calls us to make disciples who understand these things too. Father, may you be glorified in our lives as we seek to live them for you and your kingdom. Lord, we lay it all down to be used by you the way you need us. We love you. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church or on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Hyde Park Baptist.